It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 747 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I have another excellent episode lined up for you today. Joining me as my guest is Pat Morrissey. Pat's the Senior VP and General Manager of Upland Software's Altify CRO Solution Suite. And today, we're going to be getting into the details about the emerging customer revenue optimization space in the whole world of complex B2B selling. And we'll also touch about how to maintain sales momentums in your pipeline, your closing deals, while you're in the midst of being acquired and integrated into a new organization. So among the topics Pat and I will be talking about today are why sales needs to change its perspective. You know, instead of working out your strategy to, to get a customer, to close the customer, consider the customer strategy first and how you help them fulfill it. We'll talk about why it's important to understand what's your customer's personal wind. I mean, if you understand the person you're selling to, from a, you sell from a genuine place for a meaningful win. So you have to understand what's in it for them. Because after all, as anybody listens to the show knows, I firmly believe selling is a business of human connection. We'll also talk about why, no matter what sales methodology you use, you have to look at the underlying behaviors that are captured in your data and decode which behaviors truly correlate with improved sales results and impact. I mean, it requires much more than the superficial analysis we see uh, so many people tout with their products, and it requires more rigorous analysis than most managers are applying today. So we'll get into that. So uh, let's jump right into it. Pat Morrissey, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you so much, Andy. Pleasure to be here. Really appreciate it. Well, pleasure to talk to you again. The last time we spoke, I was on your podcast. Uh, yes, you were, and we had a we had a multifaceted, uh, great conversation that went in several <laughs> different directions. So I appreciate the the opportunity to you know, show up on your home court and uh, be subjected to, to your side of this discussion. <laughs> well, yeah, we we will probably have a multifaceted discussion here today as well. So, so give us a little bit of your background because you've sort of shifted. You were formerly with Altify, and Altify since you and I spoke, was acquired by Upland Software. So give us a little background on what Altify did and, and why Upland was interested in acquiring them. Yeah, it's a good question. Altify, we traditionally thought about ourselves in the space of what we've called customer revenue optimization, which is really engaging with large B2B organizations who are, who are in the complex selling world, you know, complex products, sales cycles in months and years, not in, in days mm-hmm. and weeks, selling to very sophisticated large customers. So think Workday, Honeywell, Salesforce, mm-hmm. you know, GE, etc. And our value proposition around customer revenue optimization is all about the intersection of a strategy, methodology, and technology. So how do we help organizations align their go-to-market strategy and really organize not just the sales, but the entire revenue team around mm-hmm. an account plan to go really deep with the customer, number one. Number two, from a methodology perspective, how do we help them either instantiate the methodology that they have or bring methodology to the party, which is really about getting everybody speaking the same language sure. and doing the same thing in the same way every day? And then the uh, part of the aha uh-huh in our differentiation is technology, is we've got a set of Salesforce native applications for sales process management, for opportunity management, and for account planning, so that the idea of training and best practice and methodology isn't in something that's theory and in people's heads. It's something that's reinforced day-to-day in technology. And we had had a you know successful company doing that. And when we were approached by Upland, 
Upland has really been focused on how do they build out the best in class, you know, sales and marketing portfolio with a set of technologies that are really about enabling, you know, sales and marketing, but ultimately the whole revenue team. Mm-hmm. And part of our value add to what they already had because they had capabilities around and what some of your listeners would know is, you know, Covidian for proposal management or right. RO innovation in the reference management space or Capost for really content operations, content orchestration. How do you how do you really facilitate the buyer journey? And so, so, had, so part of the sales enablement space, as people would say, yeah. Absolutely. And that's where the conversation started. But sales enablement, and sometimes some of those things are nice to have or auxiliary versus our value proposition is all about what is the CRO and the head of sales need? And how do we help her and her entire team? Mm-hmm. So, so the, the thesis behind the acquisition is really not just to enable growth, but to really start and change the frame from sales enablement to a strategic value proposition for the head of sales, and then a series of capabilities to help really activate the entire revenue team and, and generate the outcomes for customers. Okay, so uh, let's dive into that because just make because this is sort of, I mean, in addition to you guys, more people are talking about this customer revenue optimization. Um, so it's, if you're if you're a CRO and you're getting involved in this, you know, how's life changed for you? And are you guys still, you said you have software, but you're also delivering consulting service with this. How, how does yep. change take place within this organization? Yeah, and I think it really starts from generally what we would tend to see um, is a couple problem statements around either pipeline development or more strategic prosecution of opportunities. But if you zoom out for a second to the, the market context that I think informs your question, Andy, the reality is that the, the entire world has moved to a subscription economy. Mm-hmm. And you and I were talking about before we started, you know, being at, at uh, sales kickoffs and doing keynotes. And I, I was at uh, Honeywell, the connected enterprise group of Honeywell, doing a keynote for them, you know, last week. Mm-hmm. So this is the, the IoT and the connected area of Honeywell. Right. The reality for Honeywell, which lots of people know is an old line manufacturing company, is they're in the software business. Right. Every single company, regardless of the business you're in, is in the software business. Mm-hmm. And so that means you've got to rethink the entirety of, of your go-to-market model, your process, your methodology, your approach. And, and what that comes down to, to the heart of your question about how does this change for the head of sales or for the team, is a couple things. You know, number one is I think that the high ground in sales is not just sales anymore. It is, in fact, the entirety of revenue because and that, that whole end-to-end um, life cycle, because we tend to think in the old world of, of there's heroic work done by sales and you pop out the end of the funnel and then you're a customer. In a subscription-based world, the renewal is at least as important as the new logo sale. Sure. And so you got to be thinking about not just the sales team, but the entire revenue team. How do you get activate everybody? How do you deliver value in every interaction? And how do you really focus on not what's your strategy for the customer, but what's your customer strategy and what unique value are you providing to help them execute and drive outcomes? Well, that's that's a great point. So how has that helped or hindered? Because we've certainly seen the trend toward more specialized roles in sales. And and I think one of the problems that's generated, at least in some instances that I've seen, is the sort of disconnect between that relationship that you build up to get the initial order and then you sort of lose momentum as you move into the customer success and maybe the customer success people quite frankly just aren't trained in the same way to be able to spot right. spot business opportunities and really develop the account and so so how do you how do you help that 
Yeah, it's a good question. And, and I think your observation is spot on. And we tend to talk about that around here is the lost in translation problem. Yeah, I think the, the big rush that everybody's made over the last decade to, to being data-driven, there's no organization who doesn't claim to be data-driven, right? But when you put that into context of the day-to-day operating roles we all have, you have a problem because from a customer perspective, if I'm talking to the business development team who's trying to get in touch with me, you know, I end up being a, a lead score or a propensity to buy metric mm-hmm. that informs my cadence and my outbound. If I'm actually engaged in a, in a sales conversation, then I'm somewhere in the funnel and I'm a forecast probability and a deal size. And then I get to finance and I'm a, AOV or DSO and you get out to customer success and I'm an MPS score, right? right? The big problem with that is none of those numbers talk to each other and none of those numbers give any real fidelity to who am I, what do I and my organization need, and how are you going to help me do that? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it comes down to what, what we would say that, hey, all these things decompose very simply into people and problems. Do we really understand what problems the customer is trying to solve? And can we articulate them both inside the building, across functions, and outside the building back when we sit down with the customer to say, here's what we understand about you, your goals, your pressures, where, what are the strategic inputs that you have and the initiatives you're taking and what problems you're trying to solve that prevent you from doing the right thing for your customer? And how do we also map the people involved? Because to your point, one of the things that I think is a disconnect in this conversation is I'm a CSM and I'm looking at NPS or I'm looking at support, but, and I may even be responsible or at least an input on the renewals team. Mm-hmm. I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't know what problem we're solving. I don't know what the scorecard is on the customer side to say, did we hit the mark? And so what you've got to be able to do is visualize that in your CRM and in your system of record, both who are the people, are we, do we have an influence strategy? Not right. just do we know who we're talking to, but do we understand who's who in the zoo, what, what influence we have and what behaviors and who they are and what they need? And also very concretely in a one-pager kind of a view, what, who cares? What, do we pro- mm-hmm. what problem are we solving and how are we moving the needle for them? So how are you seeing this sort of uh, borne out in terms of how customers are perhaps changing, your customers are changing their sales processes, their sales structure. Um, I'm sort of interested in seeing if, if you know, since we've gone down this path, you said for the last sort of 10 years about this hyper-specialization. Yep. And, and certainly I talked to companies who are saying, well, yeah, in some aspects, this just isn't serving us, especially those selling more complex systems. What are you seeing in terms of how CROs perhaps re-envisioning what their organization looks like in terms of capturing and really optimizing what they get out of these large accounts? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think there's a couple different things going on. And I, I was actually thinking about that in context of this conversation because I was listening to your podcast a couple weeks ago and you asked a similar question. You were having a dialogue with uh, Sherry Levitin. Levitin. Mm-hmm. And, and the question comes down to, and the, the assertion that you know, she was making that I disagree with a little bit, so we can just we can get controversial right away, but <laughs> companies, companies are having to fundamentally rethink their process because the reality of, of data and the reality of the subscription economy and this dynamic change is what got you to the party doesn't keep you at the party, number one. The larger the organization you're in, the bigger and more acute this problem is mm-hmm. and the more moving pieces you have. And in the third piece that I think really informs the, the question you ask is really changing the frame, which starts from a change in mindset, getting out of the old world mindset of what's our strategy for the customer? Because what's our strategy for the customer in plain English means what are we selling today? 
mm-hmm. right? And and what it needs to move to is what's the customer strategy and how do we help? How do we help them solve their problem? If we can work back from that, we have a whole different dialogue. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Sure. So we were part of, uh, and I was part of um, our team helping Workday orchestrate their sales kickoff last year. Mm-hmm. And when you talk to Doug Robinson, who runs you know, North America for Workday, what he says is what, what we're trying to drive and, and what we think the differentiation is, is, is changing the mindset in the organization from inside out thinking to outside in thinking. Not, not what are we, why are we good? How are we going to win? But do we really deeply understand our customers and their markets and their needs and that we can uniquely understand the art of the possible with them and then we're speaking their language on their terms that we absolutely are the solution provider because when it comes to the finish line particularly selling big you know multi and hundreds of million dollars ERP deals it's not about feature function right it's about relationship it's about trust it's about expertise and it's about our commitment to those customers and if we don't go outside in and start from where they're at we don't win well let me let me ask a question on that is because this is Nothing new, right? I mean, we've had customer, totally. customer-centric selling out for a couple decades, if not more now, and, and so on. I'm always curious, like, this sort of seems to be like, you know, newfound religion for, <laughs> for people. <laughs> yep. It's like, uh, no, this is always how it should have been done. So, so when you're dealing with these big organizations and they're sort of saying, ah, well, you know, we're going from inside out to outside, it's like, what have you been doing? Yeah, and I think the I think the thing what's interesting going back to a question you asked a second ago about the what's the different and, and kind of the why is this happening, which changes the behavior. If you step back and, and use Workday as an example, but that's this just an illustrative point, right? Mm-hmm. Workday became you know a leader in cloud computing by having best in class HR capabilities. Right. That was you know the early phase. The new phase or the you know the future for them is they want to own ERP for the global two thousand. And the, and the reality of that from a day-to-day set of, you know, behavior, skills, and capabilities in sales and across the revenue team is the fact that they were best in class and really compelling selling to HR, you know, HR systems right. is not the same discipline as selling to the CFO or the CEO mm-hmm. around ERP in a full suite of the back office. Right. And so what that means is if I'm, if I'm going to make the team capable of this and part of the, the change that they're going through in that example, but Honeywell going from selling power plants to actually selling you know, contracts to, to run plants over you know, decades mm-hmm. is I've got to rethink everything, but I've got to restart. I've got to start that from coming from where the customer is, not from a, a product service and a drive-by. And the other challenge, you know, kind of what have they been doing is the old world selling that was tra- transactional and drive-by and perpetual is now much more about usage and consumption and relationships and outcomes. And so the while I think the best in class sellers have always been focused on, you know, the high ground and the people in problems, organizationally that's not how everyone behaved. Well, it's interesting to hearing you talk about that because when you're referring to old world, mm-hmm. um, yeah, to me that smacks of, well, yeah, that's sort of what we've been doing the last 10, 15 years. And what we're really doing is in some respects we're going back. Yes. What, we, what we were doing before that. So it, <laughs> for many people, when they talk about old world, it's like, oh, 30, 40 years ago. It's like, no, no. And this is, and this is, I think, is really relevant because I think that, you know, there's been this sort of Bible around how we sell subscription services that has been tried to be applied across 
all types of industries, all types of sales, and where yeah. it may be appropriate for a more transactional, for a more complex. Yeah, I've always had my doubts, and I've yeah talked to plenty of companies that also had their doubts. Is that yeah, it actually sort of looks more like what we're doing in the past from a mission standpoint. Some of the execution elements may be different, but what we're trying to achieve. Because uh, I remember you know early in my career selling mainframe computers to big companies is that. Uh, yeah, as part of a team working with somebody that managed the whole the whole account, yep. and yeah, we had yeah complete integrated team of supporting them on all levels. You know, sales, revenue optimization, da 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 da. It sounds like we're sort of heading back that way, which I think in some cases is good. You know, I think it is good, and it's you know you talk to best in class um, sales leaders and, and salespeople, and and you've talked about this a lot on on your show as well that. Hey, there's this notion of empathy, right? And it, it starts from coming from a genuine place of tell me what's going on and how can I help? And I had a great um, learning tutorial about that from a, a sales leader at, at GE last year, I guess it was two years ago. And he was talking about being the, the global account lead on a big account. So his team, the universe of people touching the customer was north of 70 people, mm-hmm. right? And he, he finally came around the corner of, hey, more is not more. And they're not going to buy us because of you know, the feature function and the new innovative tech. And, and maybe I, I need to rethink my role because I don't understand them well enough. Right. So he said, I went back and I, I sat down with the, the senior you know, person at the, the customer. And I said, hey, t- tell me what's going on. To, and and, and t- help me understand a little bit better so I can figure out how I can help. And he said, they kind of looked at me like I had three heads. And it, it took about 10 minutes for you know the customer to finally understand he was coming from a genuine place. He didn't right. come with an agenda or a new sales sheet or a, yeah. a whatever. He was trying to step back and you know, get in their head and find out what's going on. And he said, I had one of the most humbling experiences of my career because the customer sat back and kind of cocked his head and looked at me and said, I've been waiting to have this conversation with you for almost 10 years. Right. And he said it, it just it, like it hit me like a ton of bricks. So it, it forced him and, and it was part of the organization rethinking, you know, around account planning to say, hey, we're not, we, we've got great technology and it's 10 miles wide and 10 miles deep. That's not what matters. What matters is to the point you were talking about a second ago, Andy, is, hey, this is a little bit back to the future. Do we un- really understand the people and the problems? Do we un- really understand the guy on the other side of the desk? And have we walked in, in his or her shoes? And are we coming from a place of, of genuine empathy and trying to solve a problem? If the answer is yes, we're going to win. And all the other AI in the world doesn't matter. Well, and I, it's, yeah, interesting you know, to talk about the empathy. Because I think that, that this is one of these areas where we do such a poor job of training salespeople. Is that... Everybody's sort of familiar with sort of the emotional empathy, that this are the common terms, right? I've, yep. uh, yeah, I, I can feel your pain type thing, mm-hmm. which doesn't really help you in sales. What, what really helps you in sales is to say, I, I understand why you feel the way you do. And not just how you feel, but why you feel the way you do. And that cognitive empathy puts you in a position to problem solve with people. Yep. But that is the part that's so often missing is that it's, yeah, we think just because we, you know, what we often, oftentimes talk about as empathy, I think was really sympathy, right? You know, mm-hmm. And people don't want your sympathy. They want your understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, how, do we, how do we cross that bridge, right? Because I think this is a huge gap for many sellers, and it's the one that prevents them from really optimizing their own performance. 
Yeah, I think um, my observation would be a couple things um, on that track. One is trying to get to you know the next level in terms of the so what. So it's one thing to say I'm trying to solve this problem. Well, first it's getting clear on what exactly is the problem, what does it mean in actual practice, mm-hmm. both in terms of what are the business impacts, but getting into the next level questions of help me understand why it's not working today or what you mean when you said X and mm-hmm. really decoding the term because I think we sometimes, um, and I'm certainly guilty of this, you get the headline and skip to the end because right. you think you already know, you've already got the, the trigger that, oh, this is how I'm going to sell this thing and solve that problem. When you don't deeply understand why it's important, what the alternatives are, what are the, the business impacts and also the personal impacts. Which, which are huge. Also, yeah, totally. And I, my, one of my observations, one of my tells, particularly when I'm, I'm listening to opportunity reviews and, and account plan reviews is, can the person articulate not just the, the problem we're solving and who it matters to, but do they, can they also articulate what's important to these people and what's the personal win? Yes. And if you understand the people and some of the personal wins, even if it's uh, like, I just am am too stressed out, that helps inform what's going on, then you can be much more artful and you can come from a much more genuine place that allows some of those breakthroughs that that translate into meaningful relationships and and meaningful wins. Yeah, I mean, everybody likes to think that people are purely self-interested and, you know, we always use the what's in it for me type. But yeah, I, I have a... I, I turn that on the head with questions. Say so you should be asking, "What's in it for you?" Questions, because yep. that's ultimately when you're talking to someone is you want to bring it down to what does it mean to you personally. If you make this change, what is the impact on you personally? You know, is, is that an opportunity or is that a negative? I mean, and it's it's if you're going to try to put yourself in position of influence with that person, you got to understand that. Yep, that's right. Well, it's interesting, you know, listening to you talk because so much of what you're referring to is, and this is obviously speaks to my sweet spot, which is all the technology and process and so on, notwithstanding, is this is still a human business that we're in. And mm-hmm. yes, even in an account where you said you may have 70 points of contact with the, uh, the buyer, yeah, maybe you want to skinny that down a little bit, but it's still about the human aspect, the human connection, the human to human part of it that we just seem to want to glom over, right? We think that technology will take the place of that, or to your point earlier is, you know, somebody's read a persona about a specific buyer, and they think, okay, I understand exactly what this person's all about. And I read a term recently I thought was really interesting. It was a professor, I think, from Pepperdine University used it as um, intellectual humility. Mm, yes. And I think it's a great term for sort of what's missing so often in sales. And it's certainly, again, a focus of the way up, a function of the way that we we train and onboard people is, you know, are you do you have the humility to understand what you don't know, right? Rather than think that you're going to look better by, yeah, you and know, think you establish your credibility by assuming and or presuming that you know everything. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And the other thing, and I was talking to an analyst um, from Ovum yesterday, and he used the phrase that struck with me as soon as he said it, um, which I think maps is the the resulting impact. Um, if, if you can practice that intellectual humility and, and empathy and really and go deep with the customer is, you know, being able to, to, to sense and react and respond in such a way that you're perceived by the customer as, as being persistently relevant. Mm-hmm. And I thought, aha, like that, that whole notion of like, okay, if then, if, if, if the default setting from the customer perspective is I'm trying to figure this out and I know somebody or a set of somebody who can help me. 
like if you become part of that extended, you know, brain power and that extended right. decision, you know, criteria, that's the high ground about, you know, trusted advisor that everybody's trying to get to. Yeah. Is, you got to be persistently relevant. I got to be when, when in doubt or when the moves get tough, I know exactly who I'm calling and, and somebody's going to help work through the problem and do it from a genuine place where it doesn't all necessarily decode to what am I selling you? Yeah, it's, that's, that's interesting. I, this thought sprung to mind when you talk about that. Is, I remember reading this article in the last couple of years in, I think, in the New Yorker magazine about this uh, philosopher, scientist, who's, who's saying that, look, really, we need to rethink what we consider the brain to be. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, you know, the brain is no longer just this organ inside our skulls, but actually given our access to, you know, all the information in the world on our phones and so on, is that our brain has really been extended, right? It includes all this knowledge that exists somewhere else that we can easily tap. And it just sort of occurred to me as you were speaking that, you know, if you're in that trusted advisor role, you really become an extension of that person's brain. Yep. You know, that you are information that they know they can access, which is what the brain's doing, what's retrieving thoughts, um, that they know how to access it. And that's what a valuable place to be. Yeah, and and that's the network effect in actual practice in sales. And that's the difference between the really great ones and and everybody else is that you're part of, you're, you've got a, a multimodal, multi-sets of networks mm-hmm. that you're connected into and you're part of facilitating something that you know at scale becomes really, really powerful. Well, and this idea of persistent relevance, I like persistent relevance. I like because you earlier mentioned you said you know how you can be a value in every call, and for me this is such a simple sales thought that that so many sellers don't have, so many sales managers don't have, which is, and I've written about this extensively is is that I believe in every time you interact with a buyer, they have to finish that interaction closer to making a decision than they were when they started it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. what was the point? Yep. And it doesn't matter whether it's an email, a phone call, a video call like we're doing here, whatever, an in-person call. If they don't finish that interaction, if they haven't made progress, and this comes from, you know, Gartner talks about this in the study they did uh, two years ago about buyer enablement and so on, is that, you know, the metrics that their buyers that they survey were using for the value of their sales interactions was progress. Right? It's, yes. you know, it's, it seems pretty amorphous, but yeah, people know it when it happens. And so, you know, I advocate for sales leaders. I said, if you're going through doing a pipeline review, you should be able to ask every seller about every qualified opportunity in their pipeline. What's in the next step? What's the value the customer expects from us in the next step to help them move closer to making a decision? 100% agree. And if the seller doesn't know the answer... Well, then they're not doing their job, right? They need to be coached about the questions they should be asking, the discovery they're doing, because they shouldn't be able to leave that previous meeting without knowing the answer to that next question. Yeah, that's true. And I think that's also one of the, the cultural dynamics I see shifting on, on a couple different fronts in terms of the a little bit of this back to the future with sales, that the, right. the, the old disciplines become more, more critical than ever is... You know, one, you need to be able to answer that question. Did, did we deliver value and did we deliver it as according to the customer's mm-hmm. you know, perspective Such, on value? Right. Not do, but also making it an opportunity to have you know, some simple coaching on a regular basis because what I, what I consistently see when you do that either in context of a one-on-one, much less you do a, an opportunity review or a deal review, what we would call it a test and improve here at, at Altify where it's a more structured process is also making it a safe space for the rep or for the team member to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. 
because one of the tells is always, well, I think, right? <laughs> so as soon as rep gets in, I think we know we're, we're disconnected here. Like timeout, full well, stop. I've, I've got an even better one. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the seller's knowledge of what they need to do next is in inverse proportion to how defensive they get when you ask the question. <laughs> yes. And so the more defensiveness you get, the more you know that, okay, yeah, let's just stop here. <laughs> We're not going to go down this path. Let's, let's deconstruct this and see what's going on. Yeah, that, that's right. What I consistently uh, hear and observe from sales leaders that, that, that I talk to is, particularly in those review sort of situations, not necessarily the full-blown QBR, but mm-hmm. even in an account review or a deal review is right away you can class them into you know, one of three buckets because the ones that right away get into the story of the deal or the story of the account, and there's a lot of this, don't know what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. Um, but it means they haven't, they haven't done the homework. They're not prepared. They don't... They haven't had the conversations they, they need to have. A lot of times they haven't. There's sort of the mid-level, which is, again, there's some data, there's some structure, and but there's a lot of I think, or our theory is, or we suspect instead of, you know, here's the evidence, here's here's what we heard, here's mm-hmm. how we triangulated and validated, here's the evidence that, that directs us. And then there's the, the masterclass folks who go directly into the plan and start walking through people, problems, outcomes, metrics, and a lot of precision about who's doing what, how it's being evaluated. Yeah. Well, you brought the term metrics, so I did want to get back to a topic we had talked about before. We started touching on, on data yep. in sales. And... <sighs> To me, this is such a problematic area, right? It's, we have all this potential because we have the ability to collect so much data, and yet we seem to still struggle with making sense out of it in a way that's, that's relevant to, mm-hmm. to making us more effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's compounded by <laughs> you know, people online writing articles based on data that are making assumptions or conclusions about data that are just mind-bogglingly wrong. Um, yep. And so, interested in your opinion about how how we're going to come through that because we just don't know how to use it right now. Well, I would assert to you that part of the the answer to the question really gets back to this this idea of customer revenue optimization, which is grounded in in methodology. Mm-hmm. Which means you know the same language and, and to the point you were raising a second ago, Andy. It's the what outcome do we expect and what value did we deliver at each step. Right, and when you start to think about what great selling looks like, and and more often than not, the problem statement that we encounter starts in one of two places: either I need to improve my sales velocity, which is some combo platter of of win rates or deal sizes, mm. or I just need to drive more there there through the funnel, or the account planning side of the equation, which is I need more pipeline. Right, when you get underneath the numbers, uh, you know, particularly on the the opportunity level, what it's not just the numbers, it's the underlying behavior. And do we understand the same thing in the same way every day? Right. So e- example would be, um, I'll give you one of our customer examples, uh, Autodesk. So Autodesk uses a derivative, you know, fundamentally of the TAS methodology, the 1 to 20 as part of their standard operating procedure around opportunity management. And so that's, you know, the, the base case of that for, for anybody who's been asleep and hasn't or didn't get subjected to this 20 years ago, you know, starts from, you know, the, the four key pillars of that is, is, you know, one, is there an opportunity mm-hmm. and then works its way into, you know, can we compete? Can we win? And can we work? Is it worth winning? Right. And each of those has have five questions beneath it. We did a data analysis with them and looked at two years worth of transaction data, both for smaller, um, you know, deals as well as the enterprise deals. 
And what came out of that is because they're instrumenting it in Salesforce, they're capturing mm-hmm. this criteria and capturing yes, no, maybes to the one to 20. But in smaller deals, it's really what they call the critical six. There are six questions that matter. What they found is if they had a yes to the critical six, you know, whether you're talking about a mid-market deal, say 50K, right. or you're talking about an enterprise deal in the millions of dollars, their win rate went up by 84% when they could answer yes to those six questions. Mm-hmm. So I'd argue for all the high-flying data and all the, the, the depth of things we can get into and all the complex models, there's a really base element of this, again, back to the future here, of, of the growth of enterprise selling, which is it doesn't matter what, what sales methodology you use. And large, long-standing companies have their own hybrids of, sure. of what, the, what that looks like, borrowing the best of and right. what the sales leaders like over time. You got to instrument it and you got to get into not just what are the headlines around win rates, but you have to look at the underlying behaviors that are captured to decompose. Are we talking about the same thing in the same way? Can we identify things like, you know, sponsorship or mentorship or, you know, economic buyer, whatever you call it? How many of those do we have and how do we know? Is there, you know, formal criteria, informal criteria? Is there a compelling event? You've got to be able to decode those signals across the B2B landscape that really is the insight that I think moves the needle on sales results and, and impact. Yeah, well, I, I've been, I'm fascinated by the whole topic of, of data in sales and the way we use it. And people that follow me know I'm a big soccer fan. And um, you know, one of the things that's, that's sort of fascinating is, is I look at how they structure their management teams and management staffs for soccer teams. And mm. And they become very specialized in the roles that they have. And, and I wonder, you know, this is sort of a model we should be following in sales because they oftentimes will have, you know, two or three coaches directly responsible for performance of some sort. You know, one could yep. be nutrition, fitness, one could be, you yep. know, on-field performance and so on. And they have, they collect huge amounts of data. I mean, all, every player is wearing a full-time monitor right, during their training and during the game. So they... They know every step they took, the sprints they did, the longer runs. I mean, all this stuff. They can break it down. And they, they look at it and say, how can we then work with you as an individual taking mm-hmm. this data to say, yeah, here are, the, here are the areas. And this is not a, you know, it's not the manager that's doing that. You know, it's these specialized coaches. Yep. And I, I just wonder whether we're really missing it back. Because right now we're sort of requiring sales leaders to be sort of these jacks of all trade rather than saying, look, we can get, bring in some specialists instead of just saying sales enabling and saying, no, here's, I mean, have you ever met a, a sales team that has a director of performance on staff? Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up in a couple different veins. Um, one is, back to the Autodesk for, sure. for a second, they have a series of performance coaches and they're actually putting them in sales hubs and they, they talk about it in terms of black hat thinking mm-hmm. and coaching and what they're doing is bringing um, seasoned sales leaders in from the outside and making them coaches in their sales hubs around the world. Mm-hmm. Actually seen as a sign of, of respect and investment and, and importance when the teams get a coach assigned. Right. Because you get somebody with you know, you know, 20, 30 years of sales experience dropped into your patch or dropped into working on accounts and stuff with you who doesn't have a quota, who doesn't have an agenda and is all about trying to help you coach. Right. I think there's an emerging element and we've tried to bake some of this into the software capability that we have too. It's all about how do you get those signals and how do you enable more high fidelity coaching? 
and how do you build skills over time? And it goes back to the a topic we were hitting on with the Back to the Future theme here is this idea that you know in the old world of selling there was you know sort of the three buckets right you got the top you know 10 or 15% that move the needle and and break your comp model mm-hmm. you've got the broad middle that you're trying to turn C's into B's and then you've got that lower tier that you're going right. to flip over anyway uh, the the implication of what you're suggesting and and I think where the world is moving and the application of data is not just the personalization element but it starts foundationally from the idea everyone deserves to be coached Right, and, and in the example you're using with you know the, the top tier, the premiership teams on the pitch are over analyzing everything, trying to figure out for for every role for every individual, how do we help them perform a little bit better? And that that same mindset absolutely needs to be translated to best in class revenue teams because the the top, the best of the best, are getting coaching in all those different dimensions, right? And data and feedback. And that's got to be the application of that data to help everybody get a little better every day, every week, every month is where the opportunity is to fundamentally change the game. Yeah, I think it brings up a, a couple of interesting points, too, because I think that one of the things that, that they really emphasize in the, these top professional sports leagues, and it's, you know, soccer in particular, is that there's two aspects to a person. There's the person and there's the athlete. Mm-hmm. See, and I think as more and more time I spent at sales, which has been decades at this point, but more time spent analyzing this, I think that that the top performers tend to be those people that are more comfortable with sort of the basic human elements of sales, right? The connection with somebody else, to being a good person, having being trustworthy. You know, we can go through these list of attributes. And and I was reading this article that was really interesting about, about a year or so ago about. Uh, I forget which soccer team, maybe Liverpool, my, my, my team that I obsess about. And um, they said, yeah, when they, we first get them into, into the team, whether it's the first team or their academy, their lower level team, he says, yeah, we, we train them how to be a person first before a player. Mm. You know, teach them how to take responsibility for their lives, how to have yep. the discipline to train, to eat right off the field. And that stuff's all obsessively monitored too. But, but I, I thought there was such an interesting... Uh, description of it because we we no, don't do any of this in sales. We don't train people how to be human, how to be better people. We assume they come into the job knowing how this how this yep. is supposed to be, and it's clearly not the case. And so it's like we have to sort of say, okay, how do we? And this is another area of performance coaching. How do we how do we train people how to be better humans in order to help them be better salespeople? Well, yeah, that's a that's probably a whole series of of podcasts and discussions about yes. you know how to how to do that and you know yeah how to be simultaneously you know the best version of yourself that your mom would be most proud of and be the highest you know sales performer that you know who's mm-hmm. taking home the big hardware and the big checks at club and going to club. But I think there's a couple foundational elements that you're kind of pointing to, particularly when you think about the discipline of, of sales and the revenue team, which starts with communication. Mm-hmm. The uh, I saw a statistic, I think it was a state of sales report from Salesforce, where they talked about the fact that 80%, when you look at the top um, required skills or requested skills, when you're, you're going looking for you know, sales leadership is communication, mm-hmm. which begs the question, how many sales leaders have ever had communications training? Yeah, including you know listening or even just you know how do you have, where are the high value questions and how right. do you have the dialogue right? 
uh, answer is far fewer and, and far less than we'd like. And then you, you point that, you look at any given organization and say, you know, talk to me about your, your center of excellence, your center of revenue performance, or your, your go-to-market mm-hmm. team or your sales enablement team, like whatever it's called, right? How many, how many of those teams have that, that people first kind of, let's, let's double click on uh, you as a human and some core skills and, some, and, and attributes and traits that we expect you to exhibit as a foundation to here's what good looks like in selling in this organization. Right. And this, this is, gets back to the point I was making before about the specialized skills we need in a management team that don't exist. If somebody, you'll call it communications, I'd call it relationships, right? And I know okay. this term drives people crazy. But, you know, it's truly what it is, is, you know, how do we enable you to connect with another human being and form this, you know, utilitarian functional relationship that, that is the sales relationship. Yep. And, I, and I give people the example oftentimes. I don't know if, You've ever watched the uh, the show on? I think it was HBO. Uh, billions. Uh, yep. You watch Billions. And, I've seen it. I'm not. I'm not an advocate but, of. It. But there's this there's this character Wendy who's who's the staff psychologist or psychiatrist, um, and yeah, you know, plays a very vital role for keeping people's mind focused and you know <laughs> making them more human in this you know trading environment that's exaggerated but is you know sort of the worst. Yeah, you know, brings out the worst behaviors in people. Yep. But think about how many sales teams would benefit from having, you know, a therapist on staff one <laughs> one or one or two days one or two days a week. And we laugh at it. But if your sales jumped five, ten percent, why the hell wouldn't you do it? Totally. And you were so afraid as a as a profession to explore any of this stuff that could have just to me it could transform how we help people become better at their jobs. And to your point about these middle class, I call it the sales middle class, right? The B's wanting to be C's. Yeah, oftentimes it's not it's not a, not their ability to necessarily quote unquote sell or product knowledge or customer knowledge. It's these other, you know, more intangible qualities that really prevent them from achieving at the level that they could. And yet we don't give them any training on that. Well, we don't, and I think we also don't we don't give them a vision of why it's important. Um, not just functionally why it's important. It's going to help you make your quota. But you know what this dialogue brings me to is I, I used to work with a guy who had an outsized impact on me for the, the time that I knew him, Glenn Davis, who ran um, you know, sales excellence and um, commercial excellence in, at uh, United Healthcare at Optum. Mm-hmm. So he used to talk all the time about you know deal fluency and client intimacy, right? But it but it came from a place that was very much in the mindset of what you were talking about earlier with you know Liverpool and the you know the top tier teams are trying to instrument and really think about the best in class revenue you know team as really um, elite athletes that mm-hmm. you needed to you need to take apart all the different behaviors and and help in a variety of different aspects to help them be the best versions of themselves. But his point of view was sales is not just a profession and it's not just a discipline. Actually, Glenn's argument was sales is a vocation. It's a higher calling. So if mm-hmm. you come from a place that this is not, you know, we all, you know, can, can stereotype the used car salesman, right. you know, cheap and cheerful, you know, kind of crappy experiences. His point of view is this is a discipline that you want to get to be world-class about. It is a higher calling. And when you are really expert in this, when you can fundamentally change, you know, the customer's lives and the behaviors, then amazing things happen. Yeah. And if 
and if then that if that's your mindset informs all these other behaviors, then what you're talking about here is right on point. And I think it starts right at the beginning. And so this is another one of my you know, big bugaboos is that you know, we try to say, look, onboarding takes this long. And if you're not going to you know, come up to speed in this period of time, then suddenly you're you're, you're shifted down. They don't get rid of you. You're, yeah, you're suddenly a B player. Yep. And then we all know that all sorts of behaviors kick in with sales managers, uneven lead distribution, da-da-da-da. They just serve right. to reinforce that. And again, back from, <laughs> from reading about soccer and soccer management, because I think they do such a fabulous job of, of what they call man management and male teams, but person management, is, is they say, look, with anybody in sort of this athletic endeavor, is you can't predict that aha moment where it all starts making sense. Mm-hmm. And and teams will invest in the development of players, and some guys maybe at 18 years old it it kicks in. Other times it might be 22 years old that it kicks in. And yet we apply increasingly, especially in the more transactional you know SaaS business, we apply this broad brush you know 90 days, 30 days up to speed. Yep. Where if we're more individual about it, is that hey, what's the deal with 90 days? I mean you've invested all this money in this person. Maybe they need 180 days. Maybe they need a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, you'd benefit so much taking that person rather than trying to find another person to replace them after six months. It'd still be to your benefit to keep them for a year to see if, it's, if it kicks in and to help them in a way that it, that it kicks in. And yet we seem this intolerance for you know, diversity in terms of how long it takes people to come up to speed. Yeah, and, and I think that's part of the tyranny of the short-term quarterly thinking. Yeah. Is everything deco- we take the wrong notes out of the data and decompose into where where are you on the sales ladder and where are you in the ramp and if you those two numbers don't look you know decent pretty quickly then suddenly you're a second class citizen or worse yeah as opposed to playing the long game and and I'm sure you've had countless conversations of you know people who had to spend two three four five years in an account before they really got before they really cracked the code that there's the people element, there's also the environmental element, there's the client situation, there's a whole bunch of other things that get into, hey, what is, how do we get to success? And how do we build those relationships that turn into meaningful, you know, commercial value over time? Yeah. All right, Pat, unfortunately, we need to cut off this. (laughs) We didn't answer any of the questions I had lined up, but this is a fantastic conversation, nonetheless. Well, and I think we should take it on the road like we were talking about. You should come down to Austin. We can hang out and have some barbecue and try to do some field testing on some of these higher-order issues. Or alternately, we can just go see a Liverpool game. I'd say both. So you're a, you're a soccer fan as well? Uh, I'm, I'm an aspirational fan. I like that. And I actually, the thing I love the most is actually going or watching soccer with true soccer fans yeah. because the songs, the backstories, the religion, and all the other stuff, it's just fun to be a part of where I don't, have, I don't have to know the details of the players. I, I just want to be part of the experience. Yeah. Well, I've been fortunate to go to one premier league game in person and it was, it was a lot of fun. It wasn't a great match, but just the environment was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I still haven't been to Anfield to see Liverpool. So that's, that's on my list, but um, yeah, we'll do both Anfield and Anfield and Austin. Uh, I'm in. And also Austin FC coming online in 2021. So <laughs> right on. All right. So all right, Pat. Uh, hey, tell people how they can get in touch with you before we take off. Sure. You can. I'm you know Patrick Morsey on LinkedIn here at, at Upland Software. You can find me on the Revenue Optimization you know podcast um, on, online in in Spotify or Apple or all your favorite podcast places. And you can find us at Altify.com and UplandSoftware.com. 
Perfect. All right, Pat, look forward to talking again soon. Thanks much, Andy. Have a great day. You too. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for the week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank my guest, Pat Morrissey. Join me again next week as my guest will be Paul Smith. Paul is an author and an expert on storytelling, and it's a return visit for Paul. We previously spoke about his book, Sell with a Story, How to Capture Attention, Build Trust, and Close the Sale. And on next week's episode, we're going to dig into the topic of why stories really are important in sales, how to get better at telling them, and we'll also talk about Paul's new book, 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell. So you definitely want to check that out. Be sure to join Paul and me next week for that conversation. Before you go, don't forget to visit andypaul.com and get your copy of my sales growth planner for 2020. Now, in this, I walk you through a step-by-step process to create an incredibly effective sales plan that will help you hit your targets in 2020. This is the same plan format I've used throughout my lengthy sales career as both an individual contributor and as a sales leader to hit my numbers year after year. So for more information, get your copy. Visit andypaul.com forward slash planner. That's andypaul.com forward slash planner. So thanks again for joining me. Until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.